Thank you for tuning in to Speak of the Devil, Reverend Campbell Interviews. What follows is a legacy interview from Nine Cents Podcast. Enjoy. I sat within the barley green, I sat me with my true love. For better or for worse, there was no big black limousine that came and was the hadn't been for the Church of Satan in my life, I would have felt very isolated, very alone, and perhaps very angry. The more that I learned of him, the more I understood him to be a truly authentic person. Your life has been connected to Satanism. Is that, uh, do you ever regret that? Oh, not for one moment. I mean, imagine, if you if you had someone you admired that much, you had an organization that you admired that much, and then you get to do that for the rest of your life. Don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. He lived happily ever after. Welcome to a very special episode of Nine Cents. I'm being joined by none other than Magistra Templey Rex, Magistra Blanche Barton. How are you? I'm doing very well, Adam. How are you? Uh, quite well, thank you. Uh, I'm very, very excited to talk to you. Uh, you are one of the, uh, as many see it, uh, major influential figures in Satanism throughout its history, and I'm very, very excited that you uh, could find some time and agreed to come and speak with me. Well, I'm I'm flattered, you know. I I I've, I've been uh, you know, as time goes by, you know, the decades sort of fall under us and all of a sudden I find myself in the position of being a cornerstone. So, yeah. that's pretty exciting. <laughs> well, I do absolutely want to talk about your life as a satanist and as a magistra in the Church of Satan, but first, maybe we could get a little bit of a background. Uh can you tell me a little bit about Blanche Barton? Sure. Uh I was uh, born in San Diego, California. I've spent most of my life in California, actually, except for um, four years as a child in Idaho. Um, I, you know, I, I general uh, British Isles mutt, mostly Welsh <laughs> and, and English uh, ethnic background, a little bit of Pennsylvania Dutch thrown in. But, you know, I come from a pioneer stock. My family background is basically, you know, Mormon westward expansion on both sides. They were sheep ranchers and farmers and they came here looking for freedom and self-reliance and uh, you know not a lot of book learning but a lot of smarts and um, my father though he was he was very smart he, he was a a staunch atheist um, oh, wow. he just passed away recently but uh, uh, he grew uh, grew up you know he was born in 1923 so at the age of nine he declared himself uh, an atheist uh, there is no God in 1932, which was a big step in those days, you know. Absolutely. Uh, he would be introduced by friends. They'd say, well, this is Billy, my friend. Um, he's an atheist, but he's really a good person. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, that's he raised me to be uh, very questioning of all things. And um, he, I remember he 
put me down on my hands and knees when I was, you know, three years old in the grass and got down there with me and, and sort of looked at everything from an insect's perspective. I have a very clear memory of that. So he raised me with a great deal of empathy toward animals and, and trying to understand people from a, from a, um, not a religious perspective, uh, from intelligence and rationality and, and really understand where people come from, what their motivations are. So, you know, that's kind of my background. Wow. So, I mean, I was actually a Mormon background as, as well as far as, like, I, I mean, my parents were Mormon, and then, you know, they were sort of the first generation in that family. So it's always interesting to uh, run across someone else who has that, you know, in their history as a bit. I mean, was your mother the same way? Was she um, atheist, or was she connected religiously? Well, she wasn't connected to the religion. She was raised a Mormon, but she called herself a Jack Mormon because yeah. she would always slam slam the, her door in the face of the people who'd come knocking and <laughs> say, you know, oh, we, we, you know, we, you should join the stake, the local stake, and be involved in everything. She didn't want any of that. She she did believe in Jesus, and and she, you know, we prayed together once in a while, um, but she didn't like religion per se. Mm -hmm. But what. You know, I did get exposure when I was in Idaho through my grandparents to the to the Mormon religion more, um, and aunts and uncles, and and I appreciate it that um, you know my grandmother always used to say you'll never see a Mormon in a welfare line, you know they they think about uh, self reliance, they put food aside, they depend on each other. Um, if there is a tragedy or someone needs help, they have you know they have. A network of people and it's not all about hellfire and brimstone with the Mormons you know mm -hmm. they've got their own um, worldview which some people find kind of wacky but I didn't realize it was wacky or weird until I you know got older and watched South Park and <laughs> <laughs> I understood that people thought Mormonism was strange but you yeah. know the whole golden tablets and stuff I, I grew up with that so okay it's no weirder than any other religion as far as I can see but, yeah I mean that is really interesting too to point out that when you're when you're brought up in the environment it's normal you know that is normal to you and so it, it does take quite a bit of stepping back to be able to see it through someone else's eyes and see wow maybe maybe it's not as normal as i thought it was <laughs> right yeah well and again it's it's no more weird than you know some guy dying 2000 years ago somehow influencing forgiving you with his blood or yeah. or some you know uh, other religions who don't celebrate birthdays or don't celebrate Christmas or you know whatever they've all got some kookiness to them so I don't know how one people one group can stand and point their finger at another group and say well that's crazy yeah well uh, I mean at what point were you actually introduced to Satanism well I was always interested in in the weird and witchcraft and and everything from the earliest childhood and um, so I was drawn to the Satanic Bible I saw it on the bookshelves of course I was a big reader I was an only child so I spent a lot of I was very imaginative I spent a lot of time in my own worlds you know books and and wandering you know by myself on my bike or hiking in the in the um, valleys behind us um, so I love spending time alone and, and with books, and so I, I saw the Satanic Bible, but and I turned it over, and I saw this wicked-looking guy on the back, and I thought, <laughs> oh, you know, it looks pretty cool, but I know I'll be disappointed. You know, it can't possibly contain what I was already formulating as Satanic principles and, yeah. and archetypes in my head. So, and this guy's probably just a poser, and so I didn't want to be disappointed. So then in 1974, the first biography came out, um, the Devil's Avenger, and um, I read it, and I saw someone who, you know, had not been in some ivory tower, and he wasn't really a huckster. He was 
Um, he had been a police photographer. He'd worked in the circus and the carnival and a hypnotist and worked with the police department. And he'd seen the best and worst that people can be. And he had a very sound philosophy, you know, taken from existentialism and romanticism and, and a lot of different strains and threads um, and magic. Of course, he was always interested in magic, and he brought that very much into his philosophy and applying it in a real sense, not just, you know, what I'd been exploring with, with witchcraft and other things. Of course, Wicca hadn't really been developed at that point. It was That came along a lot later. Um, as far as mainstream understanding of, you know, the invented religion of Wicca. But, um, you know, he tried to find something that was bold and earthy and reasonable, um, and he couldn't find it anywhere. So he had invented it, and it just made a great deal of sense to me. His sensitivity to animals made a big, uh, made a big difference to me. The fact that he included, you know, in the nine satanic statements about us as just another animal, you know, usually worse than the others, mm -hmm. um, and that he was very pragmatic, um, and yet he understood the poetry in human mind, too, the romanticism, and how to access that through ritual and psychodrama, and it just made such sense to me, and then I picked up the Satanic Bible with that in mind, and I immediately, you know, like so many of us do, oh, I, I'm, I've been a Satanist all my life, and I didn't know what to call it. <laughs> yeah. So there it was, and so at the age of 12, I started calling myself a Satanist. Oh, then, wow. um, Yeah, then a couple of years later, after I um, actually got the Church of Satan address um, in 1976, I was able to actually join and get my wonderful red card. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was pretty exciting. I flashed it to my friends in school and things. <laughs> I designated, you know, witch already, so it came as no surprise to anybody. My parents were a little put off at first, I think, but I had them read the Satanic Bible and said, this is, you know, this is what it's about. And so my mom wrote out the check for $25 for me to be a member, and she was always very Wow. Proud. <laughs> wow, really? So I, I'm, I'm stunned that your parents were uh, accommodating enough to read it. I mean... Yeah, well, my mom, even though she came from, you know, Mormon stock, um, she was a very wonderful woman as far as, um, she was never a dependent type woman, never, um, she always had a real clear perception about people, and um, she, they were both amazingly supportive of me, um, just where I wanted to go, they figured, well, you know, she's smart enough to figure, figure it out on her own, and, and, um, and they just were wonderful parents to have, truly. Oh, that's fantastic. And mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, especially, you know, when you're looking from the 70s to the 80s and the 90s, where we went, Satanism itself uh, went through such negative stereotypes that it became so much more challenging for children to self-identify and, and you know, announce that in their family and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's really fantastic that, that your family was so open and, and uh, you know, willing to just investigate it for your sake. Uh, well, let me ask you, at what point did you actually visit and, and uh, connect one-on-one uh, -on -one with uh, the hierarchy in the Church of Satan at the time? Well, it wasn't, you know, I didn't join up and, and for better or for worse, there was no big black limousine that came and whisked me away from some wonderful ritual. Yeah. Unfortunately, but you know, I think a lot of us, um, you know, practice Satanism, whether we join or not, we practice for years before we actually have any contact with, 
with the Church of Satan directly even. Um, and I went to school, you know, I got straight A's in, in high school, I became valedictorian, uh, salutatorian, excuse me, um, and um, I went to college and, and I happened to be uh, uh, nominated to Phi Beta Kappa on April 11th. And so that was my opportunity to kind of write to um, Anton LaVey and just tell him, you know, I really appreciate everything that you've done. Uh, I admire your philosophy so much. I've been a Satanist, blah, 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 for most of my life. And, and just to reach out and say thank you, you know, essentially, like so many of us do. And um, they wrote back, you know. <laughs> so, I wrote back and said, hey, you seem like a nice person, and if you're ever in, you know, the San Francisco area, you know, give us a call. And I was, of course, dancing in the hall. I was just absolutely <laughs> elated. Um, and then next time, within the, I guess it was um, 84, after I graduated, my mom and I happened to be taking a trip to um, San Francisco, and I said, uh, I wrote a little note and said, I'm going to be up in the area. Maybe I could, you know, meet Anton LaVey, shake his hand or something like that. You know, of course, not thinking that would really happen. Yeah. But um, we happened to be there. Uh, then, let's see, it was May 1st. And um, they said, sure, you know, give us a call when you're in town. And I did. And um, I talked to him. Uh, and we went out for dinner. Um, the two nights that uh, I was there... And uh, I'm shaking just thinking about it because, <laughs> you know, I, it's not like uh, someone leads you to tremble, but, but it, was a, it was an amazingly intense experience for me. This was a man that I had been fixating on for, you know, a good 10 years of my life. And um, I mean, was your mom with you at this point or was this a, a one-on-one? She was, yeah, she was in the hotel room. She, you know, she figured that. Well, it was fine to to meet. He's a he's a legitimate leader of a of an international organization. He's not gonna, he's not gonna do anything strange. Right. And um, so we went out to dinner. It was very very pleasant. And um, you know, when I first met him, I was walking up the stair stairs to the black house, and he was standing at the top of the stairs. And I, you know, I thought, well, no one could possibly meet the expectations that I have built up for this man. Yeah. The, over the last 10 years and um, so I just wanted to shake his hand and tell him how much he's meant to so many of us so many people he's changed lives you know if it hadn't been for the Church of Satan in my life I would have felt very isolated very alone and perhaps very angry mm -hmm. when I was young. you know um, he opened up worlds of philosophy and art writers um, to me that I had no idea even existed at the time and it made me feel a part of something much bigger than myself. Um, it made me feel uh, connected to a continuum of intelligence and rationality and creativity that I could key into when I was surrounded by zombies. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was surrounded by closed-minded people, as again we all suffer through. And um, so I didn't know what to expect. I mean, yeah. he could be very pompous. He could be, you know, and rightly so, you know, he could be, you know, kiss my ring and bow or something. <laughs> yeah. Didn't know what to expect. But instead, I get this, you know, funny, intelligent, deeply learned um, man who doesn't just want to talk about Satan. So he wants to talk about old movies and he plays wonderful renditions of music 
uh, that's bombastic and dynamic that, you know, I'd only heard in my own head. Um, and, you know, we, we just spent a, a wonderful night together and it, and it flew past. And then we spent the next night together. And, and by the time I got home, um, he wrote me a letter and he said, you are clearly anachronistic. You are an unusual person and, and it would really help if you were here. Um, and, you know, I just graduated. Uh, I was sort of up in the air as far as, you know, career path or whatever. Yeah. And so um, by September, my friends had just coincidentally contacted me about a house they were going to be renting in the East Bay. And um, they wanted to know if I wanted to come in with them uh, to rent it. And I said, sure. So <laughs> I remember I was there in San Francisco and and up the front steps of the Black House to do, you know, whatever needed to be done. You know, I ended up doing a lot of office work and filling orders and, and stuffing uh, membership information into envelopes and um, doing all the stuff that needed to be done on a daily basis. And, and I love it. And, and was all that orchestrated out of the Black House? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. We had, you know, a, a bunch of people working, um, filling a lot of orders and, and doing media representation and stuff. Within within a few months, I was doing um, media representation because, as you say, that was just the turning point, yeah. 84 uh, to, you know, mid, well, early 90s, really, was the whole satanic panic period. And so we had a lot of media stuff going on, and we were doing a lot of interviews and and a lot of behind-the-scenes things, too. You know, we were meeting with Humane Society representatives. We met with the Cult Awareness Network people. Uh, we met with a lot of law enforcement people from all levels, FBI, um, and um, all levels behind the scenes to let them know what we were about and what we weren't about and to consult on various cases. Um, and um, so, yeah, there was a lot, lot to be done during that period. What was the climate like in in those times uh, you know the early church of satan was was there i guess i guess my my question stems from this idea that with any beginning organization and you know admittedly at this point it's been it, it had been going well over a decade was there was was there a difficulty in um maybe the, the mixing the same territory, the same area, the same space between a family and an organization, a, a business almost. Well, um, Dr. LeVay had kind of gone through that with his first wife, Carol, you know, he, he had a family and he was sort of a public magician then. And uh, then with Diane, you know, he had uh, Zena running around and the lion. And so I think it made him more interesting to the media that he had this lovely wife and children and the lion and exotic pets and that he was a leader of the of the Church of Satan as well. So that was an interesting contrast, I think. Yeah, um, but he was so public with it. Um, I don't know whether the children suffered because of that public um, posture, but it was inevitable. I mean, he couldn't he couldn't really keep it apart, yeah. and so uh, he just integrated it as um, seamlessly as he could, I think. And again, along with the nude altars and all the girly magazines and and the nude pictures and all of that, there was this family aspect to it that I think people found intriguing as well. 
um, we didn't have Xerxes until, you know, it was pretty much over as far as the spotlight, uh, the um, satanic panic spotlight. Yeah. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why after Dr. LeBay passed away, I sort of had an instinct to um, back away from public representation because I didn't... I. I found myself to be a very protective mom. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want him to feel vulnerable to attacks because, you know, when we were living in the black houses, there were people that came by and threw bottles and, and occasionally shot at the house or, you know, ran around and honked and yelled. And, and um, that was just common procedure, you know, good Christians having fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we had a good working relationship with the local um uh, annex of the of the police department. You know, Dr. LeVay had had worked with them for years, and and a lot of them that came out were sons and daughters of police officers that had worked with Dr. LeVay directly. Mm -hmm. And of course, the first thing they'd ask was, "Do you still have the lion?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they'd chase the chase the marauders away. And um, you know, it was. Um, but it wasn't something that you'd commonly want to expose your child to if you had yeah. a choice. But he really didn't have much of a choice. He was a public Satanist, and, and so he had to make it as seamless as he could. Was there ever a question uh, during those earlier years in the organization that it, that it would be something that could last? The well, that's a really, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think he had an instinct to build a solid foundation. He was disgruntled and disappointed with, obviously, with uh, mystical, spiritual religions. Mm -hmm. uh, it came out of a sincere anger. Uh, and um, seeing that, that humans, when you uh, believe in nonsense, you're building your life on a foundation of sand. You know, all, all the decisions that you make coming out of that, if you believe in some guy in the sky that's making decisions for you or that can be petitioned to solve the problems of your life or that you're going to go somewhere after you die, that there is somewhere after you die, and where is heaven and where is hell physically, and all these ridiculous questions that any questing, thinking, rational being has about these um, spiritual religions, these questions that cannot be answered, he recognized, I mean, as as so many of us do, that 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 you can't run a life like that. You can't run a business that way. You can't run a a, a government that way. Um, so it he's a, he very authentically wanted to create something that was strong and powerful. I'm not sure. I mean, he talked about the first 99 years are the hardest, um, but you know, he wasn't talking about satanic revelation. He never claimed to have. Uh, the word of Satan, or to know where all of this was going to go, but I think he just wanted to build a philosophy that people could really apply in their lives, and um, and he did. Um, yeah. And the interesting thing that you know we're talking about now, as you're growing up in it, as so many people are growing up in it, I've grown up in it, and this is what I want to. I know we're skipping ahead a bit, but uh, this is what I want to approach in the new Church of Satan, right, is that now that the church has been around for almost 50 years, how does it apply over the course of a lifetime? You know, it's not just, 
I want to wear a Baphomet and piss off my parents. You know, where do you go from there? How do you how do you build a family? How do you build a community? And does Satanism work in that context? And we're the ones finding that out. We're sort of this experimental generation that's applying it over decades. And it helps us grieve. It helps us raise our families. What Every decision that you have um, echoes out from your basic philosophy. And um, so that's what we're finding out right now. I, I've never even really thought of it in that context before. I, I mean... Whenever anyone in, you know, generally I've spoken to a number of Satanists about this on this podcast specifically where they, they learn about Satanism, uh, however they come to it, they self-identify and they uh, carry that philosophy with them. And fr from the moment of questioning, that's kind of where it ends. You, you don't really probe, well, how do you apply this in your life when you're going to the grocery store and stuff like that, you know, but there are little cues that you experience in life that you are forced to draw from a philosophical life choice standpoint of, of you know, I'm going to do this because this is how I see the world. It influences your decisions every day. That's, and yeah, I mean, that, that concept that we are the generation, um, and, and maybe, you know, from the last generation to this generation of how does it mean to live? Not just identify, but live as a Satanist, and you know what's the next phase from that um, as the as the religion continues uh, into the future. That's that's a really wonderful thought process there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did it exactly. Well, you, I mean, you mentioned um, Xerxes. What was it like, uh, and maybe even in the context that we're just speaking to here, of becoming a mother? Uh, you were around, and you saw. Um, Anton LaVey's uh, children um, growing up in the organization as he was developing it, you you had um, just really first-hand knowledge of that process. So, And also, you know, just that concept of once you become a mother, everything changes. So, so how did that affect you? Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't one of those little girls that, you know, dreamed about the kind of wedding I'd have at age five or how many, you know, I'd have 3.7 children or something, or what, what the man I would be with, or, you know, who I'd marry. I didn't idealize my wedding or my wedding dress or anything like that. I wasn't a, I wasn't a frou-frou kind of girl, strangely mm. enough. Um, and that wasn't in my, in my mind, but when I got to a certain point uh, in our relationship with Dr. LeVay, um, I realized that we really should have a child together, you know, um, that that if we didn't have a child together, every playground that I passed, it would just rip my heart out, you know, for the rest of my life. Because he was, you know, older than I was, and, and I knew that he'd be gone, and I'd have a lot of years left to grieve him. And um, and I wanted to see what our, you know, what sort of fascinating creature our genetics would, would blend into, <laughs> you know? And so I approached him with the idea, and... Um, he said, sure, you know, let's do that. And, um, and so we became pregnant pretty, pretty quickly uh, once we made that decision. Yeah. Um, and um, it was interesting to, to have a, a being inside you um, that's separate from you, that you're carrying around and you're nourishing it, 
and you know it's going to be a different entity, completely different, partly you, but it's going to have different opinions, it's going to have different tastes, and 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 you're, you're sort of this host, which is weird and, and kind of science. <laughs> um, and I came to realize before he was born that um, for the rest of my life, there will be somebody out there that I am linked to. You know, there will always be somebody I'll worry about for the rest of my life, and, mm-hmm. and that will never go away. Um, and so that was, you know, that was very satisfying. And yes, I turned out to be a very protective mom. I knew immediately I did not want to send him into, into the, the horror that is uh, school. Um, <laughs> and so I wasn't ready. And I don't think most parents are ready at, you know, what, what did they start now? Preschool at three or four or earlier than that? Yeah, um, yeah, I think kindergarten's five, I believe. Yeah, I, I was nowhere near ready, and I knew that I wanted to teach him certain values, certain content um, that he just wouldn't get in school. So um, I decided, you know, when I was pregnant that I was going to homeschool him. And so we we did that uh, for many, many years, and I'm very glad that, that I did because, you know, one of the es- essential messages, again, of, well, again, me as a product of the 60s, what I got from the 60s was not take lots of drugs and, and p- weird, you know, paint your face and, and be <laughs> but it was, you know, stand up to the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be cowed by authority. Um, respect the earth, respect, you know, your fellow animals. Um, and these are kind of things that I wanted to pass on as well as satanic values to my son. And homeschooling is all about, you know, teaching them not to sit down, shut up, don't squirm in your seat, receive the messages that I'm giving you without question, um, do your work when you're told, exactly for how long that you're told, um, and don't study things that you actually enjoy. I mean, school is sort of the ideal um, avenue for squelching any love of learning, independent thought or learning. And so I just didn't want to subject him to that at all. So, so that's why we homeschooled. And I'm, and he's become because of that. He's become a very independent thinker, a good friend, um, and all the things that you would you know want him to be. Yeah. So, yeah. Was there ever a point where you were uh, maybe intimidated by the notion of of continuing homeschooling? I mean, you you are a very educated woman yourself. Um, very good academically so it's not like you didn't have the experience but you know just that idea of of being a parent and and did you ever think that that maybe because he was homeschooled he wasn't getting uh, a full social experience that's what they often get to people who don't know homeschooling often get to that and you know you're right in asking the question because um as you well know you know we socialize all the time we say we we made a point of uh, getting together with other children at least once a week in a in a park group, which is uh, for homeschoolers. I would definitely recommend getting in touch with local homeschoolers, and so that your kids can have interaction with other children. And it's a wonderful support for the parents too to you know compare curricula and um, and you know disciplinary methods and yeah, yeah. emotional support when you need to you know break down and cry because you're driving yourself crazy um, yeah I definitely found the local homeschooling community and again I got in with a wonderful homeschool group that was not religiously oriented uh, was very academically oriented and um, 
but you know also you know to approach the heart not just academics and yeah. and so it was and I'm friends with them and and Xerxes was exposed to a group of people that are delightful children and and unlike our you know peripatetic group uh, society that moves every four years and and kids are ripped away from their best friends next door yeah. um, he's kept this social group for you know ten years or so or more so it's been pretty constant with him which I think is a is a wonderful thing yeah. Um, but, but yeah as far as homeschooling is a very intense um, experience and again when I got to about 2001 as far as the organization went um, I knew that my time could not be allotted to both I saw the legacy that Anton LaVey left me as his child and the organization yeah. um, and I felt very torn between between those two responsibilities and but no one could raise my child um, but there were two people who I treasured and admired who I I felt could really um, do the Church of Satan proud in uh, Peter Gilmore and, and Peggy Nadramia yeah. and um, they were the only two people that I would have considered taking over the organization I knew at that point that it was safe from the girls because they had been you know dragging me through probate court and other complications trying to you know they treated me like the scarlet woman trying to take everything they could from from Xerxes and myself and including threatening the Church of Satan but I knew that that storm had passed and and um, but I wanted it to be in the hands of people who could really understand the philosophy and would be responsible to the organization and um, Peter had already designed the website an excellent website they both had been doing um, Peggy had had been on the message boards and doing whatever she could to um, stamp out fires on uh, the internet where, wherever they they came up and they've been doing media representation through the whole satanic panic thing and I and I knew knew them intimately that they that they understood all aspects of Satanism you know the the black capes and the horns and the romanticism as well as the pragmatic nature of it and the, and the garish nature of it that we all enjoy um, the burlesque nature yeah. and um, and so they were the only people that that could have done it and they've done a fabulous job yeah oh, I, absolutely well I mean let me ask you because when while you were um, raising your son and still I mean was there a, still a heavy burden on you individually to run the organization or I mean at that time uh, when Anton LaVey was still with you did he sort of just take that part over or was it with it with there a, a larger group also assisting well there we had people that worked in the office um, you know his job was not to you know physically type out the letters and yeah. and fill the fill the envelopes but you know before the uh, advent of the internet we had to you know apply our butts to the to the seat to the chairs and <laughs> and answer all these inquiries and we were getting a significant number of inquiries every week um, without fail and memberships and you know book orders and and pin orders and you know all this stuff needs to be taken care of um, and then of course there's the media stuff uh, Dr. LeVay was the one uh, he was very selective with the interviews that he chose to do and he was very selective with the people he interacted with but he 
he was very careful. Um, and during that time, I think there were a lot of young people, writers, musicians, um, and this is where a great deal of satanic influence came from, was people would come through his doors and they'd spend evenings with him, young people, movers and shakers, writers, um, musicians, philosophers, you know, people who who were thinkers and involved in in the wider society and shaping the wider society. Mm -hmm. And um, he spent significant time with them. And I think that influenced, um, you know, fashion and music, the whole revival of of uh, music from the 30s and 40s, I think that sort of echoed out from the Black House. Um, of course, the formation of, of magical thought um, and various other, you know, fashion, goth, um, other aspects, film noir, um, came out of, of Ground Zero, you know, as I see it. Uh, uh, his interaction with the, with the people that he did during that very uh, inform uh, formative time in the in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Um, I mean, at what point did you decide to? I mean, you, you've written two uh, amazing books: uh, "The Secret Life of a Satanist" and "The Church of Satan." When did you first decide to start writing a a, a biography of of your husband? Well. I found myself answering the same questions over and over again. <laughs> and um, actually, a few other people had thought about doing um, doing a biography of some sort. Um, and But I found myself taking notes. When he was doing interviews with people, of course, I was always there. And there were people, memories that were coming up, um, people, you know, from his past, characters from his past, Rubber Bubber Johnson or or um, Milo and Roger, you know, this, this comedy team he knew, or, or memories from the circus, or, or burlesque, or um, the carnival, or, you know, these very vivid images, or movies that he'd talk about, or, or music, and, and I just didn't want that to go unnoted, and so I just started taking notes, and one time, um, after the person that he was doing the interview with left, he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just taking notes on what you're saying. And he looked them over and he said, you know, this is good stuff. You should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I, and so I, you know, I started gathering up stuff. And, of course, most of the book is because he's right there. Um, I wasn't working with secondary sources. Um, I wanted most of it to be, in both cases, um, straight from the horse's mouth as much as I possibly could mm -hmm. um, as a primary resource. So um, I did check. You know, it's funny when people say, well, he didn't really work with the police department or uh, they try to, you know, disdain um, either that I'm not the writer, that he really wrote it and I was just sort of uh, hovering or, or, or he was dictating to me um, or that a lot of what he says is, you know, fabricated or something like that or exaggerated. And I'm an intelligent person. I wouldn't have put anything in that book if I didn't you know, know that it was factual. He yeah. had documents, you know, we spent enough time together that he could present me with, you know, like invoices that he had from, from when he was uh, doing photography for the police department. Or I didn't print all that stuff because I didn't need to. I'm, I'm a person of integrity and I wouldn't have put it in the book if it wasn't, you know, true and valid. Was this a learning discovery for you as well doing this? I mean, you, you had lived with him, um, you've 
you know, like you mentioned, I mean, you were there with the interviews and everything. Did you learn anything new? Oh, yes. Wonderful things that, <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot that couldn't even go in the book. Um, he was a true rock on tour. You know, people, he came from an era where people didn't live in television or reality shows. You know, people went to their parlors and, and people told stories and, uh, people would tell jokes, you know, one of the things I always wanted him to do, I said, you, <laughs> Jesus told parables to get his ideas across, you tell jokes, you know, <laughs> when, whenever he felt he was sounding a little pompous, or, or whenever he wanted to make a point, a lot of times it came with a, a wonderfully told joke, and I said, you should, you should write these down, you know, the book of satanic parables, and, um, and there, there were stories about characters that he'd met here and there, and um, I, I tried to include all I possibly could in the book. But um, yeah, I learned a great deal about him. And and uh, the more that I learned of him, the more I understood him to be a truly authentic person. Um, people talk about, oh, well, he was just a huckster, and and you know he, but they didn't know him. They don't understand where he was coming from. He, where he got his philosophy was absolutely from his life. It mm -hmm. was from his experiences. It was pulling all these threads together as a self-educated man um, and put, putting it all together into a very cohesive philosophy that made perfect sense. Well, let me ask you, because sort of the other side of that coin of, of, of learning something new uh, about this man that you have been uh, intimate with for, for some time, did you ever, did you ever catch yourself like, come on, really, did that, did that really happen? You know, just questioning him. Well, you know, to be quite honest, the, the whole, um, a couple of weeks with Marilyn Monroe, I mm -hmm. was, you know, because she was so big, um, at the time that we were talking, she had become su such a star and had such a legacy and such a tragic death. Um, I was a little skeptical, but but he had enough that he talked about very specific like her names and um other things that i have that i have since seen confirmed uh milton burl has admitted that he knew of her during that time and it doesn't surprise me that a young up-and-coming star it wasn't unusual for um someone like that to be in that position of dancing um and he knew enough facts about her early on that unless he had really, really studied her life and, and devoted a great deal of time to using as, as a convincer, and why would he? You know, why, right. why would that be important? Why her, um, of all people? So it makes sense. He was a young, boisterous, handsome young man, musician, um, playing for burlesque houses, and she was a, a hot, young actress. I mean, why wouldn't they get together, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, well, I mean, and the other book that you wrote, uh, The Church of Satan, that uh, amazing book, it really helps, you know, if there were holes for someone not not understanding um, the formation and progress of The Church of Satan, this book answered every one of those questions brilliantly. But as with anything that is referencing history and, and the philosophy or, or maybe just the operations of an organization like the Church of Satan, you know, things change from time to time. And so there there's uh, small portions of information about Grotto specifically, for an example, that are out of date. Um, 
have you ever considered writing a new edition? I have, and I am I am working on it even as we speak. Oh, uh, exciting! Yeah, yeah. It, there's, as you say, stuff about the grottos and the groups, and just so much has happened since Dr. Levay passed um, that I think it's important for um, for people to get an updated view of what the Church Church of Satan is, what we do what we continue to do, and that it's just as strong and vital today as the day that Dr. LeVay passed away, you know. We're still, and this is again getting back to um, Peter and Peggy's leadership, you know, there were plenty of opportunities. If if they were the wrong kind of people, um, they could have exploited the Church of Satan for their own earthly gain, um, you know, started marketing mercilessly. Uh, T-shirts and posters and you know, oh, gosh, yeah. just using it, you know, pr to brand and sell whatever they wanted to, um, or they could have started altering the philosophy, or you know, use it as some sort of self-aggrandizement, you know, sweeping around in their grand robes and having everybody kiss their ring. And, yeah. But they haven't done that, you know. They've kept it absolutely on target with what um, Dr. Levey wanted. He could have done that. You know, when people say, oh, he was a huckster or something, well, he, he never exploited the Church of Satan the way he could have. Mm -hmm. um, and he kept, he had opportunities, and I, I'm not answering your question, but I am you know, broadly talking about the history of the Church of Satan, which is the book we're talking about. Right. Um, in the, let's say, after the organization had, had gotten off to a good start, um, he was going back and forth uh, up to Hollywood, you know, that's where he got in, in contact with Jane Mansfield. He was in contact with Elkie Summer and um, Sammy Davis Jr. And there's a long list of people that I would mention or or can't mention that he was involved with in Hollywood, both the writers, directors, behind-the-scenes workers. He was involved in a lot of movies at the time. He was either consulting or writing or or on set to, you know, get these fine fine points down. People wanted him on the set to for a level of authenticity that they were looking for in their in their productions and and uh, actors actresses if he had wanted to give up you know that the helm of the organization and run off to Hollywood he could have been an actor a writer a director he could have gone in a completely different direction but I think he made a conscious choice that he wanted to stay at the helm of the organization he did not want it to get off track because only he had a notion of what he really wanted it to be and so he probably could have made a lot more money in going in other directions with his life but he chose to maintain the Church of Satan be true to that and and keep it authentically whole the way he wanted to and um, and that's what Peter and Peggy have done too you know they kept it absolutely pure to what he what he wanted and that that's a big you know Peter's had a, a pretty big um, tough act to follow, you might say, you know, to be the first high priest after after our founding high priest. But um, he's been a great uh, gardener, too. You know, as with when Dr. LeVay was alive, there, you know, if there are people that are truculent or people that are, eh, you know, you're not doing a good job or, you know, that, there, there's the door right there. Don't let it hit you on the way out, you know. Right, right. You've got to be, you've got to be a good gardener. And that's the way Dr. LeVay was. There were people that wanted to take over the organization or they had their their temple of Beelzebub, or they had their, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever, um, uh, Lucifer this, or, or, or 
something. Yeah. And um, all it all it usually amounted to was a, um, a letterhead stationery. That's all they could afford. But you know, and lots of lots of titles. Um, but but uh, it wasn't the Church of Satan. It would never be the Church of Satan. And so he he made sure that he weeded out those people. And um, and Peter and Peggy have done the same thing, which has kept us all stronger. Yeah. So okay. would would they? I mean, you know, making the assumption here, um, they would be a big part of uh, the new edition of the Church of Satan book. Then. Yeah. Yeah. I want. I want there to. I want it to be clear to people that we have had a smooth transition, that we're we're more energized than than ever. We've got some great people because people like you who have grown up in the philosophy, who are continuing to apply the philosophy, who are going into media and politics and business and carrying that philosophy with them and applying it in the real world. We're not just, you know, joining hands and like the doctor used to say, huddling together like pigs to keep warm. <laughs> We're going out in the real world and applying this philosophy where it counts. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of Satanism is, you know, you don't take a test to become a, a, a priest or a magister um, and see how much Enochian you know. You know that's that's <laughs> yeah. not really going to get you get you a CEO position. You know it's all about you know being a true Satanist, standing forth proudly, using those metaphors, using the the prideful imagery of of Satan, um, and using that poetry and romanticism to strengthen your own soul so that you can go out and uh, and, and accomplish what you want to in the real world. When do you think that, uh, I mean, this may be too early to say, but when do you think you would be ready to release this new edition? Well, you know, like I say, I'm doing the revisions now, so it would be great if we could get it out by the end of the year. Um, but we'll just, you know, we'll have to have to see. Um, I, <laughs> I, I have a concept that I want to bring in a lot of other voices, too, which I, mm -hmm. um, because there is so... There's so many accomplished people in the Church of Satan now. Um, you know, you can tell the strength and validity of a philosophy from the quality of people it attracts. And I've seen that from the very beginning uh, of working in, in an administrative capacity, you know, for the last 30 years in the Church of Satan. Um, and, and more importantly, who stays with us, you know, over the decades. And I see names now uh, of people that I, that their memberships passed my desk 20 years ago, and they're still mm -hmm. with us, and they're out there. You know, we may not have a lot of contact with them, but, but they're still strong Satanists. They, you know, every once in a while they say, oh, you know, I'm getting my PhD and blah, 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 uh, just checking in. You guys are doing great. I'm doing great. See ya, you know. <laughs> and um, and that's, that's what I like to hear. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. You yeah. don't have to have everything spoon-fed to you. You're not just looking for grotto activities or something. You're you're applying applying real world uh, achievement in in your life, and that's that's a that's a great thing. Uh, the quality of people that I've met in an administrative position over the course of the time that I've been, you know, uh, in a in a leadership position in the organization has been astonishing. I mean, truly, the Satanists that I've met are the are the smartest. They're most self-reliant. Um, they're self-motivated, and they grow up to be great parents, great business people, whatever they set their minds to. It, and this is 
wonderful for me to see unfold. This is a, mm -hmm. a joy and a treat for me to be in the position that I, that I am, to see these people manifest themselves fully in the, in the world. Um, and that's what I want to communicate um, when I say bring in some voices, you know, from real Satanists, so that yeah. other people who are reading the book who don't know anything about Satanism, who might think, oh, it's a cult, or it's weird, or, you know, it's just a bunch of people wearing black and listening to heavy metal music. <laughs> they don't know, you know, <laughs> they don't know what it is. And so I want to communicate to, to both other Satanists and people outside of Satanism, so that uh, when a Satanist moved in, moves in next door, they, they don't have to hide the children or, you know, call the cops or something. Yeah. <laughs> we, may, we may have coffins, and we may have weird artifacts, and we may have odd interests and strange pets, but um, we're, you know, pretty reliable people when push comes to shove, you know? Let me ask you briefly about this, and, and I don't know if, I mean, I, I imagine you would have to have uh, had it cross your mind um, briefly, but those are like dramatically different audiences obviously you know trying to write write a book for non-satanists to explain what the church of satan and what satanism is versus writing it to satanists and and trying to explain it is that ever challenging for you to try to 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 write a novel addressing both dramatically opposing views of the same source well of course you have to keep your audience in mind with um, whatever you write. That's one of the primary rules of being a writer, right? Yeah. Um, but I have a very clear vision of the ideas I want to get across. And it's sort of like, you know, again, I learned so much from Anton LaVey, and that's pretty much the attitude he had, is you write what you feel, you write it cogently and passionately, and devil take the hindmost. You know, mm. you get it out there, and it'll get to the right people. You know, either someone who may have heard about Satanism and really didn't know what it was about, or maybe somebody wants to explain what it is to their parents so they won't get freaked out about it. You know, I think I think it's possible to um, to cover all of those bases. At least I hope so. Yeah. Uh, books that I've written have certainly been I've been honored. I've been touched by the people that have written to me or spoken to me and said, you know, your books have been so important to me, and it gets me choked up because. You know, I Anton LaVey was so important to me, and that I would have part in in clarifying and writing and bringing this philosophy to other people. It's just it's very humbling, and that's hard to get a Satanist to be humble. You know. So. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't just books that you've you've written and been involved in. Uh, you are also in the featured in the album Satan Takes a Holiday, right? Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. How did that all come together? What was that process like? Well, as I say, um, Dr. LeVay had a lot of people coming through the doors, young people, mm -hmm. um, many musicians, um, uh, through the doors of the Black House in the 80s and 90s. And often our, our uh, habit was perhaps we'd go out to dinner, we'd come back to the Black House, and he'd fire up his keyboards in the kitchen, you know, with the wonderful murals all around us. And, and he had a gift that was one of his gifts was people. He knew people and he knew music. And he would just, a person would stand there and he'd play something. And they'd say, you know, I love that song. I hadn't thought of it for years. That song my mother used to sing me or that song played at my wedding. Or, you know, they had some emotional connection and he just plucked it out of the air and, and gave it to them, you know. And he played so bombastically and so beautifully. He didn't want to compose his own music. 
he felt that it was his responsibility to play music in the you know bringing out the most emotion and the most drama that he that he could um and he had a a connection with the songs of the you know his ideal music was like 1850 to 1950 america yeah. um and so he was constantly playing these songs and people would say why don't you do a recording you know you've got to get some of this stuff out this is amazing stuff and um you know, he didn't want to go into a um, into a studio. He was very uncomfortable. He had his setup. He'd programmed all of these keyboards himself. In the days when you know he started with a Prophet Five, practically. I mean, he had a Prophet Five, mm-hmm. and he'd taken sine waves and sawtooth waves and made them into these trumpets and trombones and and drums and snares. And he did things that people swore, well, you can't do that. You know, you can't make a sound that sounds like a real violin or something on a keyboard. And he did it long before, you know, uh, the keyboards, of course, that had come out now, they have all these things. But he was programming his own from scratch. And um, it was amazing what he did with those keyboards. And so people would say, you've got to record. So finally, some people just started, um, we had, he, he liked to hear me sing. And he put a microphone in front of me, and he'd play, and I'd sing, and we started putting down tracks of of things, and just in the in the kitchen there, never went to a studio, but he felt comfortable there, and he had all of his keyboards set up, you know, like seven of them, the way he wanted it, all his his uh, pedals and his effects, and and it was it was it was wonderful to work with him, and and he just you know we just put out some some wonderful tunes that he played a lot, and um, it was great, it was great doing that. Well, well, I I hope I'm not trying to cross any boundaries here or anything, but we've we've brushed on the topic already in this interview, and I was wondering if you would be willing to speak to the passing of your uh, your lover, your friend, husband, in High Priest Anton Lavey. Oh, boy, yeah. Um, it's hard. It's still hard. Still hard to go back there. Um, he'd been ill off and on. Um, of course, it was uh, the valves of his heart had been damaged uh, with the fever that he got when he went as a young man with his uncle to Europe. It was a, called a fever of unknown origin. So um, he didn't know it, of course. But when he got to be about, I don't know, maybe in his 40s or something, uh, one of his uh, doctors listened to his heart and he said, you know, you've got a heart flutter, heart murmur. And he said, no, I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, so that was the seeds of it there. He chose not to have, he could have had valvular replacements, um, but he chose not to because he, he just felt like his body would not like something foreign. He didn't want to go under the knife. And um, so he'd been degenerating for, for a while. So he'd been in and out of the hospital a few times the year that he passed away and it was becoming a nightmarish situation. Um, so it wasn't like we weren't prepared. Yeah. Um, but you're never prepared. And I remember two weeks before he died, um, we were watching a movie called um, A Double Life with Ronald Coleman. And um, I just started crying. Um, and he, you know, gathered me in his arms. And he said, what's going on? And I said, I don't want you to go. I know you're going to go, and I don't want you to go. And he said, you know, he, you know, he comforted me the best that he, that he could. And um, 
so when he passed, I mean, I could have gone over. <laughs> it, it, we were so intertwined. We'd spent 24 hours a day together for the for the past 13 years. I, I wanted to soak up every minute with him that I could. So we were never apart. I visited my family, you know, once once in a while, but but nothing beyond that. So to be parted from him was um, was devastating. And I could have gone right over the waterfall with him, but I had Xerxes. You know, he was my anchor. I couldn't leave him alone, of course. And um, so I had to stick around. Um, and again, humbling um, was the outpouring of support from the Church of Satan members. Um, people I knew within the organization and people I didn't really know. Um, writing letters, making phone calls, you know, leaving little trinkets in front of the house. Just um, letting me know that that he was so terribly important to so many people and that the legacy that he left us um, had to be carried on and it was that support that love um, unreservedly that kept me going it really was and again I hate to be modeling um, but that's kind of what you know we talk about churches are supposed to do and it, mine certainly did for me <laughs> in my time of of tragedy, you know. Yeah. Um, at this point, through your grief, did did the future of the Church of Satan even pass in front of your eyes? Uh, whether it could uh, continue without Anton Lavey? There was never a question, never a question in my mind. It, it was never a personality cult mm -hmm. because he he built such a strong foundation. Um. I knew that that there were members all over the world expressing uh, his philosophy that you know between the nine satanic statements, you know the rules of the earth, you know the the satanic sins. It's not like we we're dogmatic people and we have to you know quote the satanic Bible chapter and verse. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, I go back to it now because I'm you know rewriting the Church of Satan and other things that have come up in my life. Um, I go back to it now, and I'm like, wow, this was all here. This, it's all here. Um, and you forget, you know, <laughs> yeah. because, you, because we're not, you know, quoting chapter and verse. We're not waving it, you know, quoting it to people constantly. But when you go back, you, you see, oh, my gosh, you know, so much of what I'm manifesting in my life right now came from this book, and it makes so much sense. So, um, again, because he didn't, drape himself in this in this um, veneer of I am the one and only proponent of this philosophy no he you know he went to Nietzsche he went to Jack London he you know he just drew all these threads together for us and referred us to um, writers thinkers artists um, you know he, he said in the satanic rituals one of my favorite lines is Satanism dis demands study not worship yep. You know, and and that makes all the difference. All the materials are there, all the thinkers are there, and those are our guides. And and you know, it's just a matter of manifesting it for us. What was it like for you, trying to stand? I mean, there had to be a shadow uh, cast over you. This idea that you are now in control of the Church of Satan and you are the high priestess. What was that like for you? It was um, sobering. And um, and motivating, 
you know I I just when you're in that level of grief all you can do is just put one foot in front of the other hmm. you just have to keep up with the same habits little things that need to be addressed you know every day every day office tasks just kept me alive you know you breathe in you breathe out you keep filling orders you keep filling envelopes you correspond with people and and it helps you it just just not you know uh, twist into a little ball and, and hide away somewhere just these and Xerxes needing constant care and constant attention bringing me out of myself um, making me laugh making me get on the floor with him as as children are want to do that's one thing about being a parent is you just have to do baby time you know yeah. all yeah. this long list of things that you have intended to do for the day that all goes out the window because they want to play uh, <laughs> on the playground for you know three hours and you need to be there with them because because this is the time this time cannot be recovered you know the business or writing or dreams that you have for yourself that can all be connected with later but this brief time with your children only lasts so long they're they're only going to look at you with those eyes and that admiration for so long you know yeah. and um and then and then it, it goes and they and they go on their merry way and develop their own life you know so so that kept me on on um on track and being being the high priestess was it was a glorious uh, a glorious thing it was i it wasn't like I needed it for my ego. It's just that I had such a a vision from Dr. LeVay of where he wanted to go with the philosophy. And I knew I had to hold on to it and keep it on track. Hmm. And that's that was what kept me focused. And I I mean we have we have touched on this already and I'm I'm sort of uh, leaping slightly ahead here but what was it just the responsibilities of being a mother and your devotion to that that um maybe informed your decision to uh hand over the organization um to uh Megas Gilmore and Magistrate Adramia? I think that was a, a big part of it. The three of us are very close. Um mm -hmm. and it was almost like three parts acting and doing what we could do best at any given time and I knew that they could do this best they couldn't raise Xerxes <laughs> yeah. so this was, this was my job this was my role right now and I had to devote a great deal of time and life life to that and they could do very well representing the organization and keeping it cohesive and and weeding out the the troublemakers and and um, keeping it on track the way that the way that it deserved to be um, I would have if uh, if Peter and Peggy had not existed um, I would have kept the organization and tried to do the best I could but it would be like juggling so many things at once I think the organization and probably Xerxes would have suffered as well yeah so um, it was elegant it was elegant the way that it worked out um, maybe magical nice know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, what about the Black House? I mean, you, you actually ran a campaign to save it, correct? Well, I did, of course. I mean, who wouldn't? Um, it was a wonderful place. It was important to, to San Francisco history as well as, you know, magical history. Um, people had always come by there. It was a mecca 
as it was, people would, would stand across the street and just stare at the place, you know. Um, it was invigorating for, for, again, for a lot of people around the world. It was very important to them. They'd heard stories about it. They'd seen, seen it in Satanus or something. And um, it was an important icon for people. Um, built in 1887 by a sea captain. Um, you know, it survived the 1906 earthquake. And the, the um, front ritual chamber had that wonderful fireplace it was built from the rubble recovered from the streets of san francisco after the 1906 earthquake and those stones were so important um i tried to buy them before the place was torn down and at first they said because i couldn't i just couldn't stand the idea of those those stones that came originally from probably from england somewhere yeah um carried in in ships around the horn as ballast and then integrated into the streets of San Francisco in the you know 1800s or something I just couldn't imagine them being torn down and thrown in some rubble trash heap somewhere you know so I tried to purchase them at least um, and at first they said yeah and then I don't know they they changed their mind for un, unknown reasons um, so I wasn't able to do that and I wasn't able to raise the money we were offering I mean some individual members were offering up to eight hundred thousand dollars to purchase the house um, granted it was in terrible shape it had never been renovated um, it had a lot of a lot of physical problems with it and when I had someone from a historical society come in and evaluate it to try to preserve it you know create um, some sort of fund to preserve it they said it's really not in good shape and you'd have to spend at least a million dollars to renovate it to a point where we could designate it as a as a preserved site, you know, in wow. So that avenue didn't work. And the people who owned the building knew that they could get a lot more money from tearing down this ransackled old ransackled old building and, and building a sparkly new condominium, you know, with San Francisco prices the way they were. But um, you know, that's the sad bottom line truth of it. But I and I do grieve it. I felt I felt terrible about about that house because it it was a magical entity. It was a beautiful house, and and the doctor used to say, you know, the roots of this house go all the way to hell. Mm -hmm. and, um, he loved it. He loved that house, and and it was sad that it got torn down. But then, you know, Magistra uh, Ruth was talking to me just recently, within the last couple of weeks. Uh, we were together, and she said, and we were grieving. The, the house again and and she said you know you really wouldn't want it to be around she said it's better that that the ideal of it stays in our minds and that the physical property is gone she said you wouldn't want these these cheap you know celebrities wandering around and having their parties you want Justin Bieber in there showing off the, the black oh, house friends or something you know she she said it's better that it's gone you know it it was what it was and now it's gone you know so I try to keep that perspective, and it probably is magi magically astute to think of it that way, but uh, but it still hurts, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, l let me ask you: your your life has been connected to Satanism. Um, you are truly a cornerstone of the organization, and and really. You know, just the zeitgeist of, of Satanism itself, you are you're now forever intertwined with it. 
Is that, uh, do you ever regret that? Oh, not for one moment. Uh, it's, you know, every magical working, every ideal that I ever had from such a young age. I mean, imagine if you, if you had someone you admired that much, you had an organization that you admired that much, and then you got to, it's, it's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or something, you know, <laughs> you, you get to do that for the rest of your life. I mean, that's, <laughs> and you remember that wonderful line from, from um, Gene Wilder, you know, what ha don't forget what happened to the, to the boy who finally found all of his dreams came true. You know, he lived happily ever after. <laughs> and uh, that's, how, how can it get any better than that, you know? That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining me and, and, and being so open. And um, this has been absolutely thrilling for me. I, I truly appreciate your time. Before we, we, we go, if it would be all right, you did just release uh, the latest edition of the Clovenhoof, uh, issue 133, and I'll have the um, URL for more information on that in the show notes. Um, and if I could maybe uh, ask you a question or two about that, um, sure. when did you first start that publication? Well, the, the Clovenhoof was um, running for a long time. Um, before you know from the very beginning of the of the organization it was the house organ the newsletter mm. of uh, the church of satan um but i sort of took over in the um as editor in the i guess it was in the 90s um we wanted to expand it into it, it was pretty much a, a little newsletter and we wanted to expand it into more like a magazine um uh, with lots of uh pictures and funny articles and and a much wider wider voice and so we did that um, we enjoyed it uh, it was it was a lot of fun for uh, dr. LeVay he was playing with Photoshop and, mm -hmm. and he would he would make these interesting creations sort of like Mortensen you know he'd take uh, photographs and and then alter them and and make them into interesting things and and um, so it's a wonderful outlet for true Satanism. It always has been, and it got me writing uh, because uh, we needed articles. And and you know, Dr. Levay said, "Well, you're a writer. You know, you went to school in literature and writing. Write something." And <laughs> and so I did, and I started writing little articles, and um, and we put them in the in the newsletter. And then when it came time to expand it, I was I was writing more and more. So. Yeah, it, it's been a wonderful thing. I've, I've been very um, sporadic uh, since the doctors passed away with the release of different issues, but it's always in my mind and in my heart. And now that, you know, Xerxes is older and he requires me less, I, I'm finding that my life is changing uh, to open up more time, just time, to yeah. uh, do the research and, and concentration, creati creative uh, concentration to do more writing and uh, representation, and and the cloven hoof is a big part of that. So I'm looking forward to getting out it out more often, hopefully. That was very exciting, and you do also accept uh, potential submissions as well. Um, and is that correct still? Yeah, sure, absolutely. We've got um, uh, every issue at least um, has had several. Um, you know, it's nice to get other voices, you know, mm -hmm. get yes. different ideas, fiction, poetry, um, nonfiction articles, you know, that, that are pertinent. I, I've been sort of off on a 
political tangent and and I've been integrating my interests in raw foods in the last couple of issues um, you know to me Satanism advocates um, taking care of your body taking care of yourself not being dictated to by uh, advertisers who are trying to poison you and um, so yeah these are issues that are very close to my heart these days and to me they are they are a natural evolution of my satanic take on things and so that's where that's where I'm spending a lot of my energy and uh, I hope people won't find it tedious I hope they'll find it more energizing <laughs> yeah have you ever considered going uh, to a digital format well, yes, I have. I think it would probably be less expensive for me to produce, but there's something about holding, you know, the tradition of holding something in your hand, getting it in the mail, holding it in your hand. That's that's the way I got the cloven hoof when I was a new Church of Satan member. You know, I, that's what I, I rushed to the mailbox and I saw the return address and, and I'd get excited reading the new cloven hoof and I guess it's sort of a an ECI or a, an emotional reaction or attachment that I have to the physical presence of, um, of the actual newsletter. Yeah. Um, so that's important to me and it's, it's all too easy. You know, we get lots of, I get newsletters um, via electronic formats and I click on them, I read them a little bit and uh, they disappear, you know. But um, Getting something physical and being able to walk around with it and sit in your easy chair with it and ruminate, that's really important. That rumination uh, is an important magical act. And I, um, I think this encourages that, which, which I think is, is valuable. Nice. Are, is there ever going to be a, a re-release of older issues? I've thought about that. Um, and I do have access to issues going all the way back to, I just ran across some some going back to um, the late 60s, early 70s, and I was thinking it would really be fun to for people to, to have access to that, and so yeah, that's certainly in the back of my mind. I don't know when or how I can do it, but and that might be better to be an electronic format, you know, sort of a, on a disc or something that maybe people can get several issues or or something you know these are just ideas i've been been toying with so it's interesting that you would um bring that up but yeah definitely no oh, that's that's actually really exciting I, I i know i cannot be the only one that would love to get um my eyes on you know these these older volumes that i have no way of you know seeing at the moment yeah. um okay well again you are uh, an amazing woman thank you so much uh for joining me and I absolutely am positive that the audience is going to truly love this this time we've had together. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for your show and for you know being as conscientious and, and comprehensive as you have been getting these voices out there. I know it makes a big difference, and I know you're obviously committed to the philosophy in a very deep a deep way, and uh, it's it's really appreciated what you do. Great, and and I would absolutely love to have you on. Uh, at some time in the future on later uh, literature releases of yours or uh, maybe just to talk about homeschooling or raw foods or anything like that. Sure, sounds great. It's a date. Great. Well, until then, hail Satan. Hail Satan.
Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to a legacy interview from Nine Cents Podcast Archives. You can hear past episodes of Nine Cents by visiting the archive at ninecentspodcast.com. This has been a production of Speak of the Devil, Reverend Campbell Interviews, a proud member of Third Side Network. You can learn more about this show by visiting my website, rci.thirdsidenetwork.com, or by emailing adam at thirdsidenetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Third Side YouTube channel or RSS feed for up-to-date interviews. Hail Satan!